Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. The creative process, the creative life, the ups and downs, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. Does everyone remember um, on Wide World of Sports when they would show the agony of defeat and it would just be the skier um, wiping out really bad and possibly dying? Um, so anyway, that's a side note. Um, I love talking to creative people, and this week my guest is a returning champion. He's been on the podcast before. Filmmaker Jeffrey Schwartz is a documentarian. The last time I had him on, it was for his documentary about Tab Hunter, and he has a brand new documentary that's going to be screening at Outfest next week called The Fabulous Alan Carr, all about the fabulous Alan Carr, the producer of Grease and many other uh, amazing projects, and some that kind of crashed and burned, like the Oscars with Snow White and Can't Stop the Music, Village People. So lots of stuff about that. I, uh, I love the movie and I had lots of questions for Jeffrey. So before we get to that, I want to encourage you to check out DennisAnyone.net. Um, I post all the podcasts there along with sometimes there are pictures that go with them. And Jeffrey tells a story later in the podcast about a gift he got from somebody and he shows it to me. Um, and I take a picture of it for the podcast so you can see what he's talking about. Um, that was very mysterious. Uh, you can also donate to my virtual tip jar. It helps me pay for parking when I go to meet people and just little expenses that come up with doing the podcast. Um, it means a lot to me and I always appreciate any support. You can write a review on iTunes. That's cool. You can like the Dennis Anyone Facebook page. All that stuff really helps. Oh, and the Patreon. Um, I have a Patreon group. And if you want to become a Patreon supporter of me, you get one extra episode a month of totally exclusive content. And uh, I just had one go up with some really fun new observation deck questions and an interview with Armistead Maupin I did uh, probably like 10 years ago. But just as um, so many stuff, so much stuff, especially the stuff he talks about the gay community is so interesting uh, to listen to. And I love him. So that's at Patreon.com. All right, without any further ado, I want to get to Jeffrey Schwartz, and I also want to mention that if you're in L.A., the fabulous Alan Carr, his movie is screening at Outfest on July 12th, Wednesday, July 12th at 7 p.m. So if you're in L.A., get yourself a ticket and come to that. And now here's Jeffrey. Okay, I'm here in the home of my friend, filmmaker Jeffrey Schwartz. He's got a new documentary out called The Fabulous Alan Carr. Did I miss some words? Uh, that's the name of the movie. That's the name of the movie. Yeah, The yeah, Fabulous yeah, yeah. Alan Carr. Right on, right on. It's going to be showing at Outfest. Yes. And we've had you on the podcast before because you yes. make wonderful document documentaries. Thank I you. I keep saying documentaries instead of documentaries. Some, some people call it docus. I think in Australia they call it docus. I never always, really got that. Have you ever noticed that people call bioflix weird things like... I don't know. Are people call docudramas documentaries. Like right. people would call like The Queen a documentary. Right. Which I, I have I have to take some umbrage. There. It's not a documentary. No, it's not. So no, I'm not going at all. To, umbrage is taken. Awesome. Well, I'm happy to be talking to you because I watched your movie the other night and I loved it. Thank you. Um, you've got another hit on your hands, as they say. I hope so. I've, yeah. I've seen it now with an audience maybe six or seven times. Right. Because we premiered it just like a couple months ago. Fantastic. In, in Seattle. So we just got back from uh, Frameline. I saw it with an audience at the Castro. And that's, you know, for any filmmaker, that's like the best audience. If they like it. If they don't right. like it, there's it, a lot of hissing. The Castro. If they don't like yeah. it, they'll let you know. I yeah. know that. I've been there. They actually hissed. That. Yes, they actually hissed once during during my movie. I'm trying to think of what I bet I know when it was. You want to take a guess? Yes. Um, 
after Alan Carr produces the Oscars, a bunch of Hollywood people put out a letter sort of trash saying that they don't condone what happened at the Oscars as though it was like, you know, a live sex show or something. It was like, like they were offended by it. And I, and I thought that was appalling. And was that when people hissed? Uh, they, they were more, there's more like gasps at that moment when right. they see who the people were that yeah, signed the letter. Yeah, kind of can't believe it. Yeah, but it was actually, um, the hissing came when uh, Bruce Jenner, now Caitlyn Jenner, oh, yeah. shows up. Uh, because they don't, like, they don't like Caitlyn up there. They don't like Caitlyn and Sam Fran. No, no, no. All right, let's back up a little bit. Um, Alan Carr was a Hollywood producer. Yes. Which, for someone that's never heard of him or have heard the name but don't really know about him, what's your sort of elevator explanation if you've for seen, who he was? If you've seen Grease, then right. you know Alan Carr's work. If you've seen or heard um, La Cage Faux, you right. know Alan Carr's work. If you've seen The Village People musical, Can't Stop the Music, you know right. Alan Carr's work, among many, many other things throughout his life. So even if you've never heard of Alan Carr... Chances are you've experienced something that he left behind. Right. And he had a very... He was basically... He started as a talent manager when he came to Hollywood. Uh, Then he segued into being sort of a party giver and a marketer. Right. And then he wanted to make movies. So then he segued into producing. Uh, Then he wanted to go to Broadway. So he segued into that. And he wanted to produce the Oscars. So he did that. And so the the movie is sort of a, a roller coaster ride through his career and also his sort of rocky personal life. Right. And he was sort of a larger-than-life personality. Yeah, he cultivated a persona of a flamboyant, which in, at the time was a code word for gay. Everyone right. knew what that meant when, he was re- when they would report about him in the press. They would refer to him as flamboyant. They never right. referred to him as gay. He wasn't really even officially out of the closet, which is like crazy when you think about it. But he was, he was obviously gay, but never talked about it. Even right. when he did an, an interview for The Advocate, he wasn't... Vito Russo did an interview with him for The Advocate. Right. And they never referred to him himself being gay. It was just before that was really talked about. Uh, so he, um, he cultivated this persona. He lived large. He had a, a mansion in... Uh, well, the world's really a mansion. It's a, a nice house, a beautiful guest house in, um, in um, Benedict Canyon in Beverly Hills. It right. was sort of um, part of a larger estate that had been whittled away. So he lived in the, the party house, the guest house. But right. it was a be- it's a beautiful home. That was his, his headquarters. He built a disco in the basement so he could throw parties and have Hollywood come to him. And he would walk around you know, wearing a caftan. He's, he, that was part of his image, is, is wearing a caftan, uh, being larger than life, being every, the, the life of the party. And everyone loved him. And uh, you couldn't ignore him. That right. what, that's, what, that's how he became a presence in Hollywood. What made you want to make a movie about him? I'm attracted to those kinds of characters. You know, I'm attracted to people who uh, are, have some insecurities or maybe need a, a bigger-than-life character that they create. Right. To move forward in the world. I mean, that's true of Divine. It's true of Jack Wrangler. It's true of William Castle. Tab Hunter also. You know, these are creations. And so I'm always intrigued by the external versus the internal. And I love this moment in time. I mean, we all love that, that moment, the, the 70s, and where you could become that. And he right. was sort of... I don't know that that's possible in Hollywood anymore, that you could, you could create yourself and also be... Uh, and, and make movies the way he did... And promote them the way he did. Because everything is so corporate now. He would have an idea. He'd go out and make that movie. And then the promotion of the movie was almost more important than the movie itself. Right. He did. He had a party in a subway station. He threw parties. That's how he became known. Yeah. Even before he was making movies. 
as like a promoter, he became known for throwing parties. He got um, involved with the movie Tommy. Right. Uh, and um, they were looking for a way to get noticed because it was kind of a tough sell right. at, at the beginning. So they came to him and he came up with the idea of throwing a party in a subway. And all the big stars showed up in and the subway. And everyone showed up in the subway. And yeah. that was his. There's pictures of him that we found uh, partying with Tina Turner and yeah. and Margaret. And it's, it's wild. And so he had a... Um, uh, parties uh, for for celebrities, like he'd have a party for Rudolf Nureyev at his at his uh, house, right? Which he called Hillhaven. It was the Rudolf Nureyev mattress party, and what was yeah. the, how, how did the mattresses come? Apparently, in you had to bring a mattress with you, and then things would happen on the mattress. It's very wow, confusing that's to me. hard. Big mattress. You'd have to schlep a mattress up the hill into, wow. his, into his house. Um, that's not in the movie. That's one thing we couldn't cover. But um, yeah, that Rudolf Nureyev. He would have um, a Rolodex party. Where like one night it would be A to M in the Rolodex, and the, and then the next night would be M to Z in the Rolodex. The Rolodex, for people that don't know, it was like it was like everyone had a card with their contact information on it. Right. And your Rolodex, if you had a big Rolodex with lots of famous people in it, that and was, it would that rotate the, like a would rotate. Ferris wheel, and the cards would flip toward. Um, there's a photo of Alan Carr as a kid, and are you you're aware of that blog Born This Way um, that Paul V, a past guest on the podcast, has started where. Gay and lesbian people, uh, GLBT people, show for- photos of themselves as a kid where you go, oh, that kid's gay. And this this photo of Alan Carr would have been perfect for that blog. You picked up on that, yes. That's, oh, my um, gosh. It always gets a big reaction. It's a photo we found. I only found one photo of Alan Carr as a kid. Right. And the photo is this little chubby, whatever, eight-year-old uh, showing his leg, and he's got his hand behind his head, and he's, like, camping it up at, like, eight years old. Yeah. And I, he probably, he was one of those kids who just worshipped movie stars and glamour and musicals, so he would, he was of that generation that would go to the movies, and the movies were everything, and stars were everything. Right. So he, that was probably his Betty Grable pose or something, and it always gets a big laugh because you can see where it all began. And it was the only picture you could find. It wasn't like... We've got ten pictures, but this is the gayest. Let's pick that. That was um, that was it. It was the perfect picture to sort yeah. of sum up his entire childhood. Wow. All right. Um, both Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas are, appear on the show. They were talk show hosts. And I remember their shows. I remember them. But I never thought of them as men or people. They just were sort of hosts. And so it was interesting to look at Merv Griffin and go, oh, that's Merv Griffin's face. Oh, this is how handsome he was in the scheme of things. It was interesting to look at those men as adults. Because as a kid, they just didn't seem like real people. Merv Griffin, uh, Alan Carr was on the Merv Griffin show many times. Yeah. And you could tell they have a chemistry. They have a really right. fun chemistry, obviously, both queens. And, you know, they just co- clearly liked each other and enjoyed each other's yeah. company. And Alan would cultivate relationships with reporters, talk show hosts. I mean, he he was friends with all of them. And right. he would always call them up and say, i got a scoop for you. Right. Like Rona Barrett or people like that. He was on the Mike Douglas show a lot. Um, he was on uh, Tom Snyder a lot, a few times. Right. And they, have a, they had a great chemistry, too, and we used a lot of footage from those talk shows because there wasn't a lot of uh, footage of Alan really talking about his life, you know? He's yeah. no longer with us, so you, you rely on those talk show appearances to tell the story in a yeah. lot of ways. It's funny to think if he were alive today, would he be the social media king? He would probably be shameless on social media. I'm sure he would be everywhere. I mean, he yeah. would probably be... I don't know. People ask me who's the, the closest to somebody. There is nobody like Alan Carr today. Right. But then you look at somebody like Ryan Murphy. You know, he has right. a taste. He has taste. He's like, there's certain things you know that he's going to be attracted to and he's going to make, and he's having his moment. And I feel like somebody like Alan Carr, 
um, there's there's the Harvey Weinstein's of the world, the people who are show, showmen, right? And Ryan Murphy's a showman, I, I believe that, right? And uh, but it's not the same. It's definitely not the same. Alan Carr was a celebrity too. Yeah, he he wanted to be a celebrity. He was almost as famous as the stars of the movies that he made. Right now, you have some really far fun cartoons that you use in the movie. And I, when the name came up of the illustrator, I actually worked with him on one of my projects, Sean Nadeau. So I think that's how I first heard of him. Was really? It through, um, yeah. What was the name of your short? The Dipshits. Dipshits. Dipshits was how I... That's so great that you brought this up. Because I saw Dipshits, and I worked with him around the time you made that. Oh, wow. On another show uh, that I did. It was a special for stars. Okay, cool. It was cool. called uh, In the Gutter. It was like... The oh, yeah. I, I was interviewed And you were that. in that. Yeah, and yeah, you were yeah. in that, too. That was done... I don't remember when that was. Last decade. Yeah, sometime. And uh, I, we wanted some fun animation for it. And Sean Nadeau is so talented. And he... We did about 10 or 15 animations throughout the Alan Carr film. And he created an Alan Carr cartoon character. And everything about the Alan Carr cartoon is so perfect. Because it's not Alan Carr. It's this cartoon version of him. And every little gesture, motion, head turn... Everything and the voice that we used is Drew Drogi. Oh my gosh, that's amazing! Yeah. I didn't realize that Drew Drogi came in, and I didn't know that these, these were called. They're, they're called efforts. When you come in and you and you do noises and little, we didn't do any dialogue. We just did him. We just did Alan Carr like huffing and puffing and reacting. Yeah, I to don't. Rem- that's why I don't remember a voice. I'm like, oh, he didn't speak words. Yeah, next time you see it, you, you'll hear. Alan's voice uh, just going like woohoo when he's happy about something, yeah. and that's all Drew. And we had such a fun time. We just watched the the little the, the vignettes, and Drew just ad libbed all that stuff. And he did efforts, and it was perfect. So he, I those love were, those were Drew's efforts. Efforts. That's great. Well, it was cool to see Sean's work in the piece. Um, but he would make people that you wouldn't think could be stars stars, like Marvin Hamlish and Mama Cass. Like he took people and sort of. At one point, you talk about how he believes in people more than they believe in themselves sometimes. Yeah, he started as a a manager. Not an agent, but a manager. And the manager takes a sort of star who's either undiscovered, but there's potential there, like um, Marlo Thomas. He was somebody that he really thought she was really talented and wanted to help her um, navigate a career. And so he put her, he produced a play for her, and then that's when she started getting noticed, and then she got that girl. Right. Or, um, so she was sort of... Undiscovered, and there were people on their way up. People like Marvin Hamlish. He made him a huge star by just making him famous and um, and encouraging his talent. And then there are people like Anne Margaret, who was already a star, but her career was so going down, and right. her brand, I guess, was tarnished by doing all these trashy movies and billboards and things like that. And he knew that there was so much more there, so he helped to revive her career by getting her to Vegas getting her um, TV specials, and then uh, making the town aware that she could be a great actress. And she ended up getting cast in Carnal Knowledge, which got her a Academy Award nomination. Yeah. Which was sort of, at the time, no one would have believed it. He could see things in people that you would go, what? why is he getting behind this person at this point? Well, it didn't always work. Like, yeah. He wanted to make Bruce Jenner, now Caitlyn right. Jenner, a star. Yeah. And he cast uh, Bruce in Can't Stop the Music in wasn't the lead, but it was right. a major major role. And yeah. Bruce actually turned down Airplane to do Can't Stop the Music. So there weren't really a lot of movies after that for Bruce Jenner. For Bruce actually, Jenner. Were there any movies after that for Bruce Jenner? I don't think so. Did you reach out to Caitlin yes. about an interview? I reached out to Caitlin about an interview, and that didn't end up happening. And, but it doesn't mean that Caitlin said no. It's just like with celebrities, you never really even know 
if the person is getting your query. Right. So, like on this, we reached out to a lot of people that we tried to get, but you never really know. There's so many gatekeepers. Yeah. Like um, Valerie Perrine, for example, she um, is in the film. She's the star of Can't Stop the Music. Right. She was in Superman and Lenny and lots of great movies. And we reached out to her management, and at first they said no, like three times. I usually go back three times. They said no three times. But I knew she was around. I knew she was having some health problems, and I said maybe she doesn't want to go on camera, or maybe they're protecting her. So I just went on her Facebook page, and the guy running the Facebook page is a a really close friend of hers, who's sort of her caretaker now. Right. And he's like, of course she'll do it. Sure, she'll do it. And she's in the movie, and I'm so happy that she's in the movie. So you never really know what's You never know. When you do a subject, can you tell how much warmth the people have for this subject in general by how quickly they say yes. Yes. Um, Do you get an idea of like, oh, this person is clearly very loved because these gatekeepers are opening up? Well, uh, I can give you an example. There was um, a guy named Tom Mount who used to run Universal. Right. And uh, Alan was involved with the marketing of the Deer Hunter, that movie. Yeah. And Tom Mount, uh, I called Tom, or I emailed Tom Mount. I got a phone call back from him within 20 seconds of the email. And the first thing he said was, of course I'll do it. You know, so a a lot of people really, really loved him. A lot of people had mixed feelings about him, but ultimately, like, wanted to do it because he's he's an unforgettable character. Um, He could be difficult. The people in the movie talk about him being sort of a Jekyll and Hyde kind of of person. Uh, Bipolar, maybe. Undiagnosed. Who knows what was going on there. So we definitely wanted to celebrate him, but also talk about the uncomfortable aspects of Alan Carr's life and the problems that he had and makes him more human and relatable. Yeah. Uh, I can understand why Tom Mount would want to do it because you talk about in the movie how Alan Carr came to be a champion of the movie The Deer Hunter even though he had nothing to do with the production and he sort of engineered what we now know as the modern Oscar campaign in terms of when the movie comes out and the word of mouth and having parties for people and then that movie won Best Picture. Yeah, Tom Mount called Alan because he knew he was a genius at promotion. Right. And Tom Mount said, I don't know how I'm going to sell this movie. We're in for a lot of cash, as he says in the movie. They spent a lot of money on it. They didn't know how to sell it because it's grim. It's about, as Alan Carr says in the movie, it's about Vietnam and poor people. <laughs> you know, right. Not his kind of movie, but he, exactly. he saw it and he loved the movie and he wanted to help, you know, get... He wanted to help get the attention that it, he felt it deserved. So he came up with the idea of a end-of-the-year Oscar campaign uh, by screening the movie in New York and L.A. for influencers, as we call them now. Right. And uh, he did that, and he threw parties, and he got on the phone, and he created buzz and awareness. And then the movie ended up doing great business, and it ended up getting many Oscar nominations and won Best Picture. And Tom Mount literally credits Alan Carr for making that happen. And do you think that other studios started looking at that model and going, oh, this is how we... This is how we do it now. This is how we... Yeah, it's still this, still, to this day. And no one had done that before. That was that was an Alan Carr contribution. He, You know, people looked at him as sort of cartoonish, but he, at a certain point, like, people started to realize how brilliant he was and how smart he was about the business. Um, and... He, at one point, ditched the caftans and started wearing a three-piece suit. You know, right. It was around the time of Greece, where he he became, I don't know if you want to call him respectable, uh, because there were still a lot of people who thought he was just too much, right. but he knew what he was doing. Uh, when, and, but then, he wasn't always right. You know, he did Greece, which was a sensation. It was his idea to do the movie. He pursued those rights when he saw it off-Broadway. 
uh, he was influential in casting, uh, the visual approach, choosing the director, finding the DP, choosing Pat Birch through the choreography, all these things. He brought, he made a, a great team. And when the movie came out, it was a huge hit. He started basically taking credit for everything. Right. He really yeah. kind of shut out Randall Kleiser, the director, and he kind of shut out Robert Stigwood. It was all about him. It was all about him. And then he felt he could do no wrong. And he could do anything he wanted. He really could, at that point, make any movie he wanted. And the movie he chose to make was Can't Stop the Music with the Village People, which ended up being one of the biggest bombs of all time, right after one of the biggest hits of all time. Right. And um, I personally love that can't stop the music because everything kind of went wrong, but it all—it's also right. And um, you know, I, I feel like that movie deserves more of a cult uh, audience right. than it does than it has. Maybe this movie will help too. I mean, Xanadu wasn't the only movie that came out that yeah, that it year. was like brought to you by cocaine. Yeah, cocaine. Um, can't stop the music. The the thing that is still a head scratcher to me, even after watching your movie, is why. Nancy Walker was chosen to direct it. She's an actress, you know, a, a comic actress that we've seen on Rhoda and all of this stuff. She'd never directed, let alone a musical. And and then when you you get the feeling that she was cranky and ungrateful and not that into it, and I'm like, what was the upside of Nancy? What, what did he see in her as a choice? Well, she was pretty well known at the time. She was a household name. She was right. famous on TV. He was managing her also. Okay. And uh, he felt he could get press out of it. And she was also, she also had had a history in musical comedy. I mean, she was on Broadway. She was, she was a, a, a brilliant, gifted comedian, understood comedy, never had made a movie before. But in Alan's mind, it doesn't matter who the director was because he was sort of controlling everything. Right. And I felt like maybe he could control her a little bit. He had uh, Bill Butler shoot the movie. He was a DP who shot Jaws and Cuckoo's Nest. He also shot Grease. So I guess he figured if he had Bill Butler there, it would be okay. But Nancy right, Walker, and also I, th- that hands-on thing with him makes sense now. Somebody I can control. It's just she's just going to be s- sitting there. I'm really going to call the shots. And uh, apparently, it didn't go so well on the set. Um, no, and, and she seemed over it too. There was yeah. like she she called it a piece of shit at one point. She was cranky, yeah, yeah. and she disappeared at, basically when the movie was done, and she did her job in terms of promoting, and she just like disappeared. And I, I, you know, I think really one of the reasons I wanted to make this movie is just to make that section about can't stop the music yeah. because it's such an insane uh, l- uh, little mini movie within the movie uh, that uh, one of the people in the film calls it uh, can't stop the cocaine. Everyone right. referred to the movie as can't stop the cocaine, and you can really see it. I mean, Steve Gutenberg is in it, and he you got Steve Gutenberg. We got to Steve Gutenberg to be in. He's another. I one like him said, a lot. He was. He was. He has such a great sense of humor about this whole thing. Yeah. He had done a, a movie or two before, but this was his first lead. And Alan Carr saw something, and, and Steve Gutenberg said, I, I think you could be a star. And Steve Gutenberg was on board. He was like 20 at the time. He's like, give me the short shorts. Yep. He what was the, the story shorts. with the short shorts? He came into audition for Alan Carr. Right. And Alan said, okay, well, you look all right. Why don't you come in tomorrow in short shorts? So he came back the next day wearing the short shorts, and he got the part. I love that it's not just shorts. Short shorts. It's damn short shorts. <laughs> God, I love that era. Yeah, and he was on roller skates, roller, yeah. sk- roller skating through Times Square. I mean, he's uh, he's adorable in the movies. Really he is funny. adorable. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, the village people, you had a, a, one or, well, at least one of them in the film. We had Randy Jones. Yes. The cowboy. Yeah. The original cowboy. He's holding up. Yeah, he's still wearing the cowboy hat. He was actually... Really working it because he hasn't been in the band since 1981, right? <laughs> and but yet he's still the he will always forever be the cowboy, yeah. From Village People, Village People are still performing, and the Village People because they they weren't I don't know they didn't have the cloud of some of the Hollywood people. They promoted that thing long after it had been a flop. Like they went around the world with it. Well, that's an example of Alan Carr 
uh, his his philosophy about the promoting of the movie is, is more important than the movie itself. Yeah. Because at a certain point, he knew it was tanking, and and this was also after the disco backlash, right? When people started burning their disco oh. albums, right? So when they started making the movie, disco was was super hot. By the time it was released. Nobody wanted anything to do with disco, right. except in Australia, where the message hadn't been received that disco, you know, was was dead. So they did a lot of promotion in Australia, and was actually a big hit in Australia. Yeah. Now the YMCA number in Can't Stop the Music is so amazing, and you see it played at gay bars a lot. A lot of hot guys wrestling, gymnastics, pool things, Bubsy Berkeley. But I learned in your movie that Alan Carr had a sort of fetish for wrestling, and so like that YMCA number is sort of pushing all his buttons. Well, it's uh, you can make an argument that Alan Carr is like an auteur, you know, the auteur theory that the director is really the creative visionary of the movie. Right. In this case, Alan Carr, you can make that argument that he's really the creative visionary because in Cast Out the Music, everything, all his obsessions were in that movie. Yeah. You know, cute boys, disco, uh, glamorous women, the roller skates, all the things that were in, of that moment or in that movie, including... You know, they used to call them Twinkies. We call them Twinks now, but in his world, they were Twinkies. Right. He loaded up the movie with lots of Twinkies, and especially in this YMCA number where he had a whole line of Twinkies diving into a pool like an old um, Esther Williams musical. Right. And a lot of those boys, he probably handpicked a lot of those boys. I bet, I'm sure the casting was intense. Yes. And, but his his sexuality sort of emerged a little later, right? You talk about him being in Mexico and Puerto Vallarta. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And he, he was seemed to be very uncomfortable with his sexuality up until a, a later date. I mean, it's just he grew up in the 50s. And even though we have one of his friends in the movie who's also gay, he says we just never, we both acknowledge that about each other, but it was never spoken. And uh, I think he was a late, he was a late bloomer. Right. He was also uncomfortable with his body. He had um, struggled with his weight. Yeah. All through his life. It went up and down and up and down and... That's part of the reason why he embraced the caftan. Yeah. Is that he didn't have to worry about it. And he would have suits in different sizes, you know, because he knew his weight was going to fluctuate. He, at one point, wired his jaw shut. I saw that. So that he wouldn't eat. You know, they were and always... And he would still have milkshakes. He would, yeah, he would drink milkshakes. I mean, there des- was always the desperate measure to do it. He would go right. on... He would go to, like, fat farms, and he went to a fat farm with uh, Bruce Valanche, uh, Bruce was telling me. That and, isn't in the movie. That's not in the movie, but they, you know, there would be, like... Uh, the grapefruit diet where you only would eat grapefruit and oh my uh, God. he had his um he had the gastric bypass yeah early in the early 70s before that anyone was really doing that and uh so the the, the weight was really an issue for yeah. him through his whole life did you see any of the caftans with your own eyes i didn't see any of them brett ratner the director right and producer also lives in hillhaven i interviewed him in that house and we talked about the disco and stuff this was years ago for movie line yeah brett so he's still in that house he's still there brett um when alan passed away brett just coincidentally was looking for he wanted a, a hollywood house with a history yeah and like, they were literally wheeling alan carr's body out of the house and, and his realtor was checking it out so he bu- ended up buying that house and just part step of, over the body yeah step over to alan carr. part of the reason he wanted to buy the house was because of the disco in the basement right and he really honored it and restored it to its glory and um there were a few things alan left behind most of alan's stuff i don't know where it ended up like i don't know where the caftans ended up or but uh, brett told me he did find a couple of caftans and tried one on oh that's yes. nice yes, good yes. that's a full circle moment i don't know why i didn't ask to see the disco when i went to his house this was for movie line years ago but he did talk about it. Have you been in the disco? Oh, did yeah. you see the house? Yeah. Oh, yeah. When we, we interviewed him in the house, yeah. that was really a great moment to actually, after spending so much time with this story, actually going to visit Hillhaven. We we got a drone shot, and we have a drone shot over the house, which he let us do. We interviewed Brett there. 
we went down to the basement. I, I spent some time down there just sort of soaking it all in. Had it changed a lot? Had he totally redecorated? No. Or what was it like? No, it still has the same... Uh, it's It's been, you know, polished and shined, but it's the same thing. It's the same copper floors. It's the same... It, th- it was like an Egyptian thing, It was right? Egyptian-themed disco. That Phyllis Morris, who was a big tacky designer back in the day in West Hollywood, she designed the disco for him. That's crazy. It was a laundry room. It was literally a laundry room. And, now, and he had his own DJ. He would have a DJ. Yeah, he had a... Yeah. Uh, Don Blanton was his personal DJ. Don was a big DJ in the clubs here in New York and, and L.A. And uh, Alan... Uh, Went up to him one day at one of the discos and said, "I'm, you're going to work for me one day." Right. And so he he, you know, basically bought his own DJ and would call him up at all hours of the night, saying, "I need you to come down here and play for this spin for this party." And there's a little DJ booth, and Don Blanton is actually in Can't Stop the Music. You could spot him. Yeah. And he used to have crazy boy parties, like some of our Hollywood producers today. Um, but then sort of AIDS kind of came into the picture, so it's kind of like this really poignant footage of. All these beautiful guys around a pool, and you just knew what was lurking. Yeah, it's, I, you know, I make these movies about these figures from the that era, and there's always a point in the movie where we acknowledge AIDS, and it's always sort of the moment where the party's over. And in this movie, that was certainly the case. You know, there there was there were parties, there were there was debauchery, there was fun. And then, weirdly enough, one of the first people that anybody knew who got sick was the writer of Grease, which I thought was so um, interesting. Who is the writer of Grease? Uh, Bronte Woodard. Isn't it funny that, like, I know that movie so well? Yeah. Bronte Woodard was a... Never heard the name. He was a southern writer. He wrote a book uh, called Meet Me at the Melba. He was friends with Alan. And uh, he was gay, too. And, uh, you know... Very underappreciated now, you know. There, we tried to find photos of him. We could, we found like maybe two or three photos up there. You know, he's a he's a name that I knew from knowing Greece and reading the novelization. You'd always see Bronte Woodard's name on there, even yeah. when they did. Uh, I had that comic book that was like the novelization, that, that was the photo novel, the yeah. photo novel. Yeah, even when they they did the remake on TV recently, it says a uh, story by, or basically original screenplay by Alan Carr and Bronte Woodard. They wrote that screenplay together. Wow. What was Alan like as a friend? Because I felt like there were some people that you felt were really loyal to him, like Lorna Luft. You felt a lot of warmth. Um, but when when people's careers are in the mix and everyone's trying to help every, you know, get something out of everybody, like did he have? He had close friends. He had close he? friends, and and they were very like compartmentalized. He had close women friends, yeah, like Nikki Haskell, uh, Alana Stewart, and Margaret. People like that, and some of them are in the film. And he was very close with them. He wasn't in business with them. If you were in business with Alan Carr, it could be hot and cold. It was conditional. It was conditional. Like, uh, you know, he would, if something, if you, if you said no to him, he could cut you off. You know, like, this is not in the movie, but I'll tell it here. Lorna Luft, uh, he was a big champion of Lorna Luft through her whole career, got her into Grease 2, got, you know, always believed in her talent. Right. And he asked her to be Snow White in the Academy Awards uh, opening number, and she thought it over, and she said no, because she just had a sense that it wasn't it was going to be bad news. Right, and that was the end of their friendship. So wow, yeah, that so was it. That was it. And she told that story, and we we couldn't use it in the film, but um, that's an example of something. Uh, yeah, how you're talking about, you know, of, of the sort of hot and cold. And he could be a Jekyll and Hyde. We interviewed one of his assistants who said, you know, you'd go to work and you'd never know which which Alan was going to show up that day. Wow. And Olivia Newton-John, he wanted to do Can't Stop the Music, and she said no. And you find, have this excellent sort of older interview clip of her saying, 
I read the script and I just didn't, I, I, I didn't want to do it. Yeah. And, uh, I don't think that that ended their friendship, but Alan was certainly pretty pissed off at her for a while because he figured that he was responsible for making her a star. He did. He made her a movie star. And, but you know, if it ain't on the page, well, she probably, well, she did Santa do that year. So we can be grateful for that. Here's one of other my favorite, one of my other favorite um, Grease stories. I should have just gone off on Zan- a Xanadu tangent, but I'm going to keep plugging away. Um, I didn't realize that the song Sandy was written at the last minute for John Travolta. Yeah. Uh, that was a great story. John wanted his own song. He, he needed a hopelessly devoted to you. He needed a song too, and he expressed that uh, to, to um, Alan and to Robert Stigwood. Right. And... The songwriter, uh, Louis St. Louis, wrote that song uh, overnight, basically. Yeah, like, like in a few hours. Yeah. Like, yeah. And they just put it in the movie, and there it is. And it's one of the great songs in the movie. I know. With a monologue in it. I wonder where the monologue came from. That's a good question. I like when people talk in songs. Talk songs. That's I probably, love them. That's probably Louis St. Louis. Yeah. Who's another great character. Now, Robert Stigwood didn't like how flamboyant uh, Alan Carr was. It well, kind of bugged him. Robert Stigwood was a entrepreneur, showman, rock Producer, promoter, cajillionaire, Australian? Australian, Australian. He was a mogul, huge right. mogul, and probably somebody that Alan looked up to as like right. aspirational. And Stigwood was the one who really put the financing together. He was the businessman, right? And so when Alan wanted to do Greece, he went to Stigwood because they had had a prior relationship. And Stigwood had a relationship with Paramount. He had he produced um, Saturday Night Fever. He had John Travolta on a three-picture deal, and Greece was going to be the second one. So without Robert Stigwood, really, there wouldn't be a Greece. You know, I mean, the Greece that we know. Creatively, aesthetically, you could look to Alan, but it may not have ever gotten made if it hadn't been for Robert Stigwood. So, and Robert was much more, he was also gay, but never, it's never been talked oh, about. Oh, I didn't know. It's I didn't never realize been, that. It's not referred to in the movie. It's never talked about. Uh, he never came out, but that was the case. And now we can talk about it. But, um, so he was, I think he probably looked at Alan as being a little too over the top. A little he didn't too want flamboyant. to get any of his gay on him. Yeah. So, but they, the two of them were, were friends and they supported each other. They never had like a big falling out or anything like that. Right. But they just had two different, very different styles. Right. And Randall Kleiser, who I've also interviewed for this podcast, has always been super nice to me. He was a young director, and he got to do Grease. But it, when it all was a hit, he would be not invited to certain events and stuff like that. Talk about your interview with Kleiser and what you learned. Kleiser lives in uh, Bronte Woodard's house. Oh, really? When Bronte Woodard passed away. That Randall. house up by Mulholland, yeah. by, um, by Runyon Canyon. Yep. Yeah. So that awesome. was the house that Grease bought. Right. And, uh, and, yeah, Bronte Woodard and then Randall. And Randall directed Grease. He had done some TV movies before, but never mm-hmm. did a big mainstream feature. And uh, Alan brought him on as somebody that he thought maybe he could, could control. And uh, uh, Randall told me, it's not in the film, but he told me that uh, uh, he didn't have an office when they were making Grease. He just had a couch in Alan's office. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that's Alan interesting. So Alan would be on the phone yelling at people. and That's all right. Alan would be on the phone yelling at people, and Randall would be there. And uh, he would just sort of be under Alan's thumb. But Alan let him direct the movie. Alan surrounded him with great people. But then when the movie came out and it was a big hit, Alan didn't want to give the impression that anybody else really had any say in anything. So he would throw parties and wouldn't invite the director of the movie. So Right. They'd find out about it later. He found out about it by reading Variety or Hollywood Reporter or something like that. Yeah. So um, actually when they had their premiere at uh, Studio 54, 
Randall wasn't invited to that, but he he bought a big. Um, remember that the old uh, blinking sign in Times Square with the advertisements on yeah. it. Yeah, he bought a he bought one of those, and what it would say, you know, congratulations to Alan Carr from Randall Kleiser in big letters. So he he couldn't be ignored. There you go. Yeah. Good, That's smart. When I watch Greece, I'm always blown away by, by the casting and how perfect everybody was. And in the movie, you talk about how he mixed young hot people, new people, with like Sid Caesar and like sort of. Legendary people that you knew Alan loved, but maybe like you know, young America wouldn't know. He wanted somebody for everybody. He wanted young people to go see the movie. He wanted older people who lived through the fifties to go for it for nostalgia. He wanted you know the kids, the parents, and the grandparents. There's so few movies now that have something for the whole for everybody. Really, everything right. is so targeted to specific audiences. But Greece was something that he knew would appeal to everybody. So he was managing Stockard Channing at the time. That's how she ended up in the movie. He wanted sort of the, the Sid Caesars and the uh, John Blondells because he just loved them when he was a kid. Right. So uh, he lived through that period. He grew up in the 50s, and he wanted to revisit that time. and sort Frankie of Frankie Avalon. Yeah, Frankie Avalon. So it was like the fantasy of what high school could possibly be. Yeah. Now, you tell a story. You get Bruce Valanche to tell a story that is maybe one of my favorite stories in the movie about being with Alan when a check showed up. Um, yeah. Remind me of where that was and what they, it was for. They were having lunch at Alan's house, and this was after Grease came out, and Bruce Valanche and Alan were friends, and uh, I think they might have even been working on Can't Stop the Music at that point. Right. And a courier showed up to the house and with a delivery for Alan, and Alan opened it up and said to Bruce, you may want to look at this, and it was a check apparently for $8 million or something like that. For Grease profits. For Grease profits, yes. And so the money was like pouring in at that time. And the deals then for independent producers were different than they are today. I mean, yeah. You could, you could become a, a multimillionaire overnight. There were, there's a lot of footage of Alan on talk shows bragging. Uh, talking about Greece and how successful it was and just bragging. And I'm watching it going, who does this remind me of? And I'm like, oh, Trump. The president. Yeah, that's... Um, I, I find bragging to be so unseemly, and I feel like we're all taught how gross it is, and yet some people just do it. Yeah, and Bruce, they, they seem to... It's part of their persona. Bruce mentioned uh, number 45. I don't like to say the name. Yeah, uh, I got Bruce you. mentioned him also in relation to Alan, but more so in context of the Academy Awards. Because when he was doing the Academy Awards, he would have press conferences and do interviews where he would say, this is going to be amazing, this is going to be the best, the biggest, the best, it's going to blow every other Academy Awards out of the water. The past few years have really been terrible, they've hired the wrong people. This is not going to be that. He so got too, way too big for his britches. He got too big for his britches, and he, you know, he started bad mouthing, uh, you know, other people's yeah. work, and you don't do that. Right. And so when the thing was, uh, let's say, uh, there was a backlash against the show, but also against Alan, and a lot of people were sort of waiting for him to fail. So when right. it did fail. Uh, the knives really came out. And right. It ultimately became a really tragic episode for him, even though it's, it's people you know, can laugh about it. It had real serious repercussions for Alan Carr's career and health, too, and life. Right. I, I just, when I see people like Trump and Alan Carr bragging like that, I'm thinking, who is that playing to? Do their supporters listen to that and go, yes? Like, who, who is reacting positive to, positively to that well, way of... Talking, he, you know, our president is also a showman. You know, yeah. give it to him. He knows how to uh, market himself, and right. he's he's uh, he's an entertainer, and it's part of the package, and I guess. You, you know, the braggadocio. Yeah. that's part. You know, the, like you said, yes, but it's package. not very many people are that shameless about it. But if you you can do that for a certain amount of time, but once you fail, 
people will have all this ammunition against you to turn on you. Yeah. And uh, that definitely happened to Alan. To yeah, Alan you Trump. certainly have no goodwill built up for, you know, on a personal level. Yeah. And a lot of people didn't like him. They thought yeah. he was just too much, too over the top, too gay. The Academy yeah. Awards, that whole approach to the opening number, which he des- which he conceived of and designed, it was actually based uh, by based on the Beach Blanket Babylon yeah. in San Francisco. So people knew it was like a San Francisco camp aesthetic, and we all know what that means. So right. the people who didn't like it, maybe didn't, maybe that was one of the reasons. So yeah. there, it's possible there was like a homophobic backlash. I don't know. I can't prove that. But. That's what I thought when I watched the movie. Let's explain it a little bit. That it was the Oscars in what year? Eighty nine was the 89. Oscars, and every year they ask another producer to do the Oscars. Right, it's kind and of that way today. Same thing today. So Alan Carr had he'd been involved tangentially in the Oscars. He right. produced the Governor's Ball one year. He would consult once in a while. He was a, you know Academy member. And one year they asked Alan Carr because they wanted to shake it up because the the, last, you know, the ratings had been going down and the opening numbers weren't great. And so they asked him. And when you ask Alan Carr to produce the Oscars, he's going to do something spectacular. Right. Big and spectacular. So he – this is when they used to do opening numbers. So he was going to uh, – he conceived of the, the biggest, most spectacular opening number that had ever been done. And the idea was that Snow White would come to Hollywood – and encounter all the stars in Hollywood and go visit the Coconut Grove and Grauman's Chinese. And it was um, a musical extravaganza salute to classic Hollywood. Yeah, and, and when I hear that conception, I'm like, that is very loving toward Hollywood. It's, it's, it's hearts in the right place yeah. in terms of what it was about. Is it tacky? Yes. yes. Is it ridiculous? Yes. Is it loving? Yes. Is it affectionate? Yes. All those things. And I'm really still a little bit confused by the reaction because it is over the top and it and it is tacky, but it's also kind of wonderful at the same time. And uh, you know, it's it's a different. And time. it's not. Sometimes people do things that they don't realize are offensive. There was nothing offensive, offensive about it. There was nothing offensive about no, it. It was coming was, from a place of pure yeah. love for the movies, love for Hollywood, and this is the time when a lot of those old stars were still around. So he wanted to put them in the, in the right. opening number. And, and sometimes it came up as, oh, that's just an old guy walking down the stage. Yeah. It's a little weird. But the, but the sentiment was pure and yeah. lovely. It was really about the uh, entertainment. And he wanted to pay tribute to Hollywood, this like city of dreams and all that stuff. Because he really genuinely believed in Hollywood. And he really genuinely believed that entertainment could make your life better. The magic and of the, the movies. The magic of the movies. And he, that was his philosophy. You know, from a really early age, like that movies were important and wonderful and fun and can make your life better. Yeah. I, I believe that. I absolutely believe that. I think that's like the little gay boy in all of us that kind of, you know, that's why kind of we're here in a way. But um, there was and you back, were able to speak to the actual Snow White. We found Eileen Bowman, who the audition. Snow White. She, um, there's something flying over us. It's, it's wow. It's Disney coming to, uh. To stop us? To stop us from talking about Snow this. White, yeah. Okay, so, yeah, Snow White was, she was actually, Snow White was actually a character in Beast Blanket Babylon. That's yeah. That's where that whole idea came from. So he needed to find an actress to play Snow White. After um, Lorna Luff turned him down, he, right. he found Eileen Bowman. She was just a working actress, and she came to audition, but she didn't know what she was auditioning for. That audition story is hilarious. And she was actually, there was a long story that hopefully will be in our DVD extras, but, you know, yeah. she was taken to Alan's house. Not blindfolded, but like she didn't know where they were going. She wasn't allowed to know where they were. And then suddenly she shows up and she's at Alan Carr's house. And there's a Snow White dress on the bed. And she was told to get in the dress. It was a little scary. Like she felt like she felt like at the end of the day she was like, "What am I getting myself into?" Yeah. And you know, you have to be a. I'm either going to get murdered or I'm going to be on the Oscars. She didn't find out until she got the part that she was going to be in the Oscars. And you needed a skilled, uh, accomplished actress to pull that off. Who could? 
who wouldn't be phased by being live in front of a billion people. And all the, the Hollywood's biggest stars right now. All the, the stars. Rob Lowe ended up being in the number. Yeah. She did a duet with Rob Lowe, which is probably the most famous thing about it. They sang um, Proud a Mary. Of Proud Mary. And so she, the, it went off without a hitch. Like, that was an incredible technical achievement to do all that. There were right. d- hundreds of dancers, huge sets, moving parts, Merv Griffin, you know, every everybody was in it. And, you know, when they did it, it was only the beginning of the show. And so the rest of the show had to go without a hitch either. And and it was great. And, and there were the things night, about the show that were really great. Yeah, there was things you remember. That was the year, the Rain Man year, so it was really emotional, seeing right. Dustin Hoffman win. That was the the, the, uh, the bit with uh, Martin Short and Carrie Fisher coming out in the same dress. Yeah. That was from there. Um, they had this crazy number with all these young Hollywood people. The it's really Hollywood interesting number. to look at now because a lot of them went on to become huge stars. Yeah, Ricky Lake was in this. Uh, Christian Slater, Dempsey. Patrick Dempsey, uh, 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 Carol Burnett's daughter, yeah. Gary Hamilton. It was, it was called the uh, I Want to Be an Oscar Winner. And it yeah. was all these young stars singing about how they, they're going to be big stars one day. And then it's fun to look back and see which yeah. ones did and which ones maybe didn't. And I think in the room, it probably didn't play as bad as the public out. No, pe- people out- who were there, outrage. yeah, totally. People who were there said it went great, and people enjoyed it and appreciated it. And there was no inclination, even that night, that there was going to be a backlash. But then the reviews, the next day the reviews came out, and that's when things started. And it just snowballed. It wasn't even so much about the number anymore. It was just about this snowballing of um, vitriol that was thrown at him. And this letter that I did not know about, and it was one of the most shocking things. And when it went up on the screen, I thought homophobia. That's the, I thought they, they were bringing him down because he was just too gay. It's, it's a very That's what I felt in my gut. plausible reaction. Yeah, some of the, you know, the older Academy members. What did the letter say? It said, um, basically came down to, we, the undersigned Academy members... We are, you know, embarrassed by this. We think this is in terrible taste. We think this is uh, an insult to the Academy, to the dignity of the Academy. So the Academy never had a really great sense of humor about itself, which is even more confusing why they let this, why they hired Alan in the first place, you know, because he's, it's not like he's insulting Hollywood, he's celebrating it. But a lot of people didn't agree with that. So there's people like Sidney Lumet and Joe Mankiewicz and Blake Edwards. Paul Newman's name. Paul Newman. It was a long, it was 17 people signed the letter. And where did it appear? It was sent to the Academy, and we tried to find the original letter. We couldn't find it anywhere, but it was the excerpts of it were published in the yeah. trades in Variety and the Hollywood Reporter. So that's where we pulled it from. But we went to – I called the, the, the man who received the letter, Richard Kahn, who I know. Uh, he didn't have a copy. The Academy did, certainly didn't have a copy. None of the undersigned people seemed to have a copy. I don't know where it ended up. Maybe it's out there somewhere, but we couldn't find it. So we had to kind of recreate the letter. But we knew who signed it, and we knew what it said. It's ho- horrible. I mean, it was a, it was a knife in the heart. Yeah, and and you, and you talk about um, Alan Carr going to lunch, and people just crawling over tables to not have to walk by his table. Yeah, it was overnight. He became kind of persona non grata, and he withdrew, and he went into uh, a deep depression after that happened. And it took a long time for Alan to sort of emerge from that. It's really it's really sad. You know, you're you're hopefully the audience, our audience for this, will enjoy the the spectacle of watching this thing, you know, just crash and burn. But then afterwards. It's, it had real repercussions for him as a person. And I also noticed something that Trump has as well, is a lot of times Alan will blame other people for things that went wrong. Yeah. Nothing was ever his fault, yeah. but it felt like it all landed with this thing, and he couldn't... 
He couldn't get out of it. He couldn't get out of because it. And even been, to himself, I don't think he could get out of he it. He had been bragging about it, that this was his baby, and, you know, just wait until you see this. And right. It's, it's all his. He, he branded it as an Alan Carr production, yeah. and it crashed and burned. And um, But it's funny, because it, he had had failures before, but it wasn't. It, they weren't, like, career-killing failures. I, and I also, this whole episode, I thought, what pussies people in Hollywood are. It made me, like, sort of... It kind of turned it me off to the industry and to the way how sort of uh, unwilling to sort of okay he was my friend before he did this fucked up thing and I guess what he's still my friend like they really are kind of not very loyal. Well, that's Hollywood. <laughs> that, I, it, it is. It yeah. really is. Um, okay, here's my other thought. Jesus H is Maxwell Caulfield beautiful. OMG, like, he is so hot. You're just realizing this? Well, I always knew it, <laughs> but when he, and, and today, even in the interview, yeah. he still looks amazing. Well, Maxwell Caulfield he was, was so beautiful in Grease 2. He was the star of Grease 2, and Alan uh, saw him in a play where he was walking around in leather pants and shirtless and, oh, and off-Broadway, and he was like the talk of the town in New York. Yeah. And Alan went backstage to meet him and, and said, I, I want you to be in, in Grease 2. And he, he, uh, Grease 2 ended up being a, another debacle, you know, yeah. it was a failure. But Maxwell Caulfield, um, that was his first major, major, yeah. major film role. It was his first film role, actually. And Pfeiffer. Like, and he Michelle Pfeiffer. discovered Michelle Pfeiffer. Undiscovered. She was, rumor has it, she was a Cheka girl at Vons. Yeah. Uh, she was a model. And he just, Spotted her and said, "She's going to be my star." So he, that was an instance where he wanted to create stars. He thought, like the way he did with Greece, these were people who, in Greece too, they just weren't known, and he was going to create magic. But you, you can't bottle lightning twice. Yeah, and Greece too didn't work. And Maxwell was uh, also persona non grata in Ellen's life. After that failed, you know, there were a lot of promises made to Maxwell. Maxwell was uh, in talks with Alan about doing other movies. And, you know, when that flopped, that was the end of that story. That, In other words, Alan dropped him. Yeah, Alan dropped him. And they never really, they had no friendship after that, no relationship after that. Wow. It's I gotta harsh. take. I got to take a moment. It's harsh. Did you reach out to Pfeiffer? I mean, I imagine you did. We did. But we I want to know if, if that was what she feels about that movie, because he did discover it. Right? Yeah, I don't know what she thinks about it. Yeah. Yeah, she was one of the other ones. Like, I don't know if she ever, you right. know, considered it or didn't consider it. But, you know, it's it's... There were some people that we tried to get that um, that I wish we had gotten, but then in a way it makes them even more untouchable and special that they're not in the movie, like Anne Margaret, who yeah. just never does interviews, even right. though she was really close to Alan. She just doesn't go there. Yeah. And um, but you know, you look at the, our documentary, and it's like, wow, you get to just see her in her prime. Yeah. And how amazing she was. And Grease Two opened on the same day as ET. Grease Two opened on the same day as ET. So it, but really... it still has, you know, you, you you one of the people who love Grease Two, you know, it's like it has its fans, it has its audience. I saw it at Outfest had a screening of it. Yes, Adrian's a med. Adrian's a med. So cute. Lorna Luft is in there. Um, the Gandhi anecdote made me smile. He went to he went to see Gandhi with somebody. Steve Gutenberg. Um, it was Russell Todd. Russell Todd, that young hot actor, the guy. He was the star of uh, Where the Boys Are eighty four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the, he tells a story in the movie of going to see Gandhi with Alan Carr, and after it was over, Alan's just weeping. And the reason is, you know, he just knew that he'd never get to make a movie like that. 
and he just had this emotional reaction to it. So that was a moment in our film where we really talk about Alan's sort of limitations that he knew he wasn't really ever going to be taken seriously by he's Hollywood. He's not that kind of an artist. He's not an art. He's not that. He wasn't going to get the opportunities to make a great film like like a Gandhi. Right. But then that was the moment where he decided I'm going to go to Broadway and yeah. I'm going to try to conquer Broadway, which he ended up doing with Lacage. With Lacage Faux, which was his. He saw the play, even before it was a movie, he saw the play in the mid-70s in Paris, and he immediately had the idea that we should do this as a musical. And then in the time it took to get the musical set up, a, a movie was made, which has nothing to do with the musical at all. Right. People it's, think it's, it's based it's, on the movie. It's, it's based not. on this play. And they, they couldn't use anything from the movie in the play, actually. So he um, con- you know, conceived of it as a musical. He brought on Arthur Lawrence to direct it. He brought on Jerry Herman, who did Hello, Dolly and Mame, to right. write the music. He brought on Harvey Firestein, who had never done a musical, but had this voice of the 80s, you know. And uh, he put the team together. And in this case, he stepped, He, you know, it was definitely an Alan Carr production, but he let them do their jobs. And he didn't try to control everything. Uh, so he didn't think he learned his lesson with uh, with Can't Stop the Music. And, right. you know, they, they turned out to make a, a brilliant uh, musical, which still plays today. And it was the first musical, Broadway musical, with a gay couple as, as at its center. Right, and now there's, they have they have like one a season, but but yeah. at the time it was brand new, and you didn't know how audiences were going to react. It was really groundbreaking. People don't give it the credit it deserves, and also it was during the a really dark period in New York in the beginning of the AIDS crisis. So this right. is 1983, which was not a good time, and there were people in the cast and um the executive producer died of aids some people in the cast got sick and died you know the the drama that's its own movie the drama of la cage and that right. show uh could be its own documentary how long did it run do you know uh it ran a few years right and then uh it some people theorize that when aids even became uh, a bigger issue that the box office dropped off i don't know that that's necessarily true uh but some people have theorized that so but, interesting that they both like emerged at the same time. Yeah, 1983, and that, yeah. that was that was a, a bad. That was I remember bad. The, year, the the week that Rock Hudson was on all the covers of the news yeah. magazines. And Rock, you know, so I think about Rock, and he had he'd gone to see La Cage Faux. You yeah, know, I think he would have been great to be in that. I'm sure they'd considered him to take over yeah. to play one of the leads. He would have been great. Have you ever thought of making a documentary on Rock Hudson? Um, I have, but I did a doc on uh, Tab Hunter. Yeah, who uh, had uh, close ties with Rock because they had the same agent. Right. So I feel like personally, I feel like I've been there i've done that like the, a lot hope, of the same themes yeah. a lot of the same story a lot of the same obstacles i hope somebody makes uh, yeah a definitive doc on rock i haven't seen one yet right but alan got one kind of shining moment when greece had its 20th anniversary and even the footage he looks like a kid in the candy store yeah this is like 20 years after greece and alan was having trouble getting anything going in hollywood you know he was trying to do more musicals do more movies but it was the 90s and things really had changed and he was an old school producer He's from a different time, and, you know, Hollywood is youth run, you know, it's run by the kids, and he was sort of on the outs, uh, but Greece was still, that nobody could take that away from him, so when the 20th anniversary came on board, he pitched uh, Sherry Lansing at Paramount, uh, a re-release. And I she, love your interview with her. Oh, yeah, she's in the movie, and, yeah. and she loved him. She's, um, she's another pioneer, actually, uh, first woman to run a studio. Uh, actually, Mary Pickford did, too, but since the 20s. Right. Um... And it was a big hit. It was uh, it was before these movies were so readily available on on home video and, and right. streaming. You know, uh, to do a, a big re-release was a big deal. 
and it's crazy. And a think, lot of them showed up. Did Travolta yeah. show up? Uh, he was part. He wasn't at the premiere, but I saw like footage of him promoting it. Yeah. And now it's so bizarre to think um, it's going to be the fortieth anniversary. Oh my God. I just ran into Randall Kleiser, and he was like, "Yeah, I've been having meetings with Paramount about maybe doing a fortieth anniversary thing." So I can't believe that's been forty years. Well, and then Grease Live did so well too. Live. There's something about. There's, it's magical. Yeah, it still holds up. I can watch that. We can all watch that movie. Yeah, and, and the moral it. of it, which is you got to slut it up a little bit to so, keep your guy. It's a little questionable. Yeah, the whole, but it, the whole we're, thing we're all fine with it. Yeah. We've all made peace with it a long time ago. <laughs> we sat on the little slope looking at that empty river and thinking, I need to change. You're just a few blocks away from the high school. Where I they know. Filmed it. Yeah. I love that. Marshall High, right down the street. I was on some tour that drove by there. Um, and then when he got sick and died, what was it that actually ended up killing him? Was it his kidneys? Or he, did he had all cancer? kinds of problems. Ultimately, I think it was bone cancer. Yeah. But he had uh, kidney problems. Um, he, you know, he, his weight was catching up with his problems with his weight. And, you know, he could barely even walk at a certain point. And it was just uh, his body was basically just failing him in all, in all the areas that it could fail you. And it was sad decline. Anne Margaret was somebody that was there near the end, which she I would love to hear about. Yeah. She, um, yeah, she, she, there was a little controversy at the end of his life. People will see that in the movie, though. You know, when he, when he got sick, he kind of withdrew, and a lot of his close friends couldn't really get there to see him. And yeah, he some, wouldn't return calls or some anything. Some people theorized, like, either, either he didn't want people to see him at that stage, or people were keeping his friends away. We really don't know what the real story is, but um, Anne Margaret was one of the people who just showed up one day and yeah. did a dance for him on his, on his, you know, I love that she did a bed, dance. Totally. Yeah, maybe she did some of those things from <laughs> uh, View Las Vegas. I hope I don't know the scoop arm moves. I don't know. We'll never know. We'll, we'll never know. We'll never know what it's, happened there. It seemed like he was somebody that felt the magic of Hollywood and entertainment deep in that in the purest way. But also, he bought into the hierarchies and the. It's, it's like you can't have one without the other. Maybe. Well, he wanted to surround himself with famous people because that would maybe rub off on him right so there's a little there's bit of security there's an insecurity and maybe an overcompensation there and maybe a little desperation too you know but bragging he, he he did become one of them yeah. you know that sort of a hollywood is a, it's a club you know yeah. and when you're successful you can be part of that club when you're not you can be as he found out you could be you know ejected from the it can be very from cold. the club it could be very cold and cruel and yeah. uh, we've seen the story over and over and yeah. over again when people who uh, have success and ha- are in the moment, but then hang around maybe a little too long in the business and uh, and make that everything. Yeah, and he never let people forget that he was the producer of Grease, as it should be. You know, he yeah. made a major impact on the world. I mean, he created, you know, as Alonzo Duraldi says in the movie, the songs are like became the national anthem. You know? Right, <laughs> the songs from Grease. And you interviewed Patrick Tobin, who's a past podcast guest. Thanks to you, you connected me with Patrick Tobin. Well, he told me that he. Late in Alan's life, he had a, a collaboration with him, or maybe wrote for him, but but he really liked him. Yeah, Patrick yeah. was a, a young screenwriter, and uh, somehow he connected with Alan, and Alan wanted to work with him and develop uh, properties uh, yeah. with Patrick. I think he probably had relationships with many writers, and Patrick was one of the people that uh, they just connected. He wanted to do a, a gay version of Vertigo. I think Patrick's wrote, Patrick wrote a gay version of oh, Vertigo. Oh, how cool that That uh, Alan wanted to do. Um, he wanted to do... Alan had this big idea... Uh, for um, for Patrick to write, and uh, he's, and he called Patrick over to the house and said, "Oh, Sherry Lansing loves the idea. We're going to make this movie." And here's the here's the pitch: personal shopper. And Patrick said, "Okay, well, what else? That's it, personal shopper." So it was going to be up to Patrick to write this 
personal shopper script, which I, I think is actually not a bad idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there was just a movie there called was Personal just, Shopper. Yeah, with um, Kristen Stewart. Yeah, but I think that's a very different, very different. Yeah, yeah, movie. yeah. So, um, yeah, thank you for connecting me with Patrick. I'm, Tobin. I'm glad it worked out. It was nice to see him in the movie. Um, Talk to me a little bit about how many documentaries have you made now? I've made six feature-length documentaries, and then if you count the DVD extras and documentaries right. and TV specials, it's probably a couple hundred there. Wow. But six features. For, for when you're approaching a feature, do you have a sort of workflow thing? You do the interviews first, then you figure out the order. Like, what is your workflow in terms of conceiving it and how it comes together? Well, they all take. Or are they different? They they're all slightly different, but ultimately it's this. It's this, the process is the same. It's not like you're reinventing the wheel every single right. time, but uh, it's about a five year. I always tell people it's five to seven years. Wow. So the average is, or you know, sometimes less, but uh, you know, the they, generally five years from that light bulb moment yeah. to you know opening night or opening yeah. day, whatever it might be. It's about five years, but um, you know, a lot of it is um, just. Uh, something in my inner being tells me that this is going to be made. You know, I, I can envision the end of the process at the beginning, but the story has to have enough compelling elements to make it a visual experience. You know, to the, is there, is the story a bigger than life story? Is the story, is he, he a great or she a great hero, uh, that the audience can root for and identify with? Uh, is there archival material to support it? Uh, are, did the person, if they're not around anymore, did they leave behind uh, uh, documentation of their life? You know, that's really important because it's, you know, you're making a visual movie. You want to make sure that right. you can tell the story. Not every life will translate to, to a documentary. You know, there can be people who made great contributions, but like, will it translate as a movie? I don't, I don't know. But I just have this instinct with Alan Carr for sure, because there's all these incidents in his life that are so colorful. They're public. And they're, and the, the, you know, the, 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 you just want to see all that. You just want to see him, um, you want to see him out there promoting Can't Stop the Music. You want to see him, you want to see the making of Grease. You want to see the making of Lacage. Uh, so, yeah, And you got the Oscar footage. Were you nervous about getting that? I was like, if he's, oh, wow, there's a, there's a good deal of Oscar footage here. There's the Oscar footage there. We don't license that material. You don't ask permission from anybody for a lot of the stuff, there's a, the movies that I make are uh, rely heavily on copyrighted material. Right. So I work with uh, they, there's a a, a, um, a body of um, copyright law called fair use, and filmmakers now are doing fair use, which means that you can excerpt uh, uh, moments from copyrighted material and transform its use. So you're you're showing something that needs to be shown. You as a filmmaker are obligated to show this thing. For educational purposes, to uh, to to visually represent what it is you're talking about, it's perfectly legal if you follow the rules. Right. And I have a a, a law firm, Donaldson and Califf, who, if you look in the credit end credits of many pop culture documentaries, you'll see them all the time because they, they understand they fair understand use. it. And now I've done fair use on you know the last bunch of movies, so yeah. I kind of know how to do it. And you just only use enough to illustrate your point and no more. Yeah. And uh, so the Academy Awards, I mean, I never in a million years would have gotten that footage from the Academy, and I, would, I didn't even ask because I, I knew it wouldn't happen. And right. I knew that fair use is, um, is the way to go. And right. so that's why that material is in the movie. And you, mean, you can watch it on YouTube. And the Academy doesn't have much of a... Um, sense of humor about that year. Right. I worked on a Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman's documentary about the Academy Awards. And, yeah. Um, was uh, doing uh, archival producing for them. And I was at the Academy and they gave me full access to look at everything I wanted to look at except 
1989, which was really, yeah. So even now they have even now they're very skittish about it because the Disney uh, had at one point threatened to sue them. They never did sue about them. Snow White. About Snow White, it never had. There was no lawsuit. It never. It just went away. So I just think they're just skittish about it. But yeah. I mean, it's been so long ago. I know. I can't imagine I, why anyone would care anymore. But so yeah, the, the that's um, part of the process is the clearance where you right. do you I do. Um, license a lot of the material from archival houses, photographers, but then there's a lot of material like uh, film clips, um, TV clips, things like that. If you put it in the context of the story you're trying to tell and you're only using enough to illustrate the exact point you're making and you run it by the lawyer and the lawyer signs off on every single use and then you get your errors and omissions insurance, you can't get your insurance without the letter from the lawyer, you can't get distribution without, you know, insurance... So it's it's the All sort of, stuff. this is how your the, the sausages are made. It's probably not that interesting for people listening, but you know you have to go through all these things. So the creative aspect of the making of the movie is one thing, but then there's the the, the whole legal side of things, the fundraising side of things, which is I spend most of my time looking for financing for these movies. That's why it takes so long. You know, if um, if the the money was there uh, at the beginning, which it never is, you I just approach them in stages where you just raise enough to develop it, um, get it up on its feet, and I get them up on their feet. All these movies are independent. I, I don't you know, go to like a studio or a network right. and say, will you let me make the movie? And I encourage all filmmakers, documentary filmmakers, to just start. And that's how these things have all ended, because they just started. And they, they just started making Along them. the way, other people will attach themselves to it, and you'll, you'll get the, the funding you need. You'll get the support you need eventually. It will, it will come together. Um, so I'm careful about what I commit to making mm-hmm. because I'm just the kind of person if I started I have to finish it. Right. You know what it is. I need to close that loop. You know, yeah. I have to I have to and I believe in it and I believe that other people would it's it's they're movies that I wanted to see, so I had to go out and make them. Yeah. Do you feel like you seem to have a from the outside you seem to have a mission to sort of tell these a lot of these gay related stories, to sort of preserve these stories for future generations. Is that something you've articulated to yourself? Is that Sure. Something I, that motivates you? Sure. I mean, I, I, I don't want to do only that forever. However, I do feel that is my part of my mission is to sort of highlight people that have been marginalized or semi-forgotten or not taken seriously in some not way. Not appreciated. Not appreciated, who I feel like the memories of them are fading away. So yeah. I've done that. And yes, they are all gay stories. Um, I will most likely continue to do that. Uh, but I mean, I want to make other movies. I want to make a Donna Summer movie. I want to yeah. Make, I saw that you had a Donna Summer book yeah, in there. I want to make movies about just people who uh, are bigger than life and uh, whose public persona is sometimes at odds with their private persona. And Donna Summer's another. I don't know why I'm talking about this, but Donna Summer's another one where you know she was sold as the sex goddess, but she was like a a, a very um, uh, religious observant spiritual person who was really at odds with that image that they were trying to sell you know, yeah. at, back in the in the 70s so I mean she's somebody that, that's not necessarily a gay story but it has gay appeal of course and it I'm does a gay, I'm a gay filmmaker so like I'm just attra- I'm attracted to these stories and I think we all as gay people we're all attracted to the things that you know quote unquote straight society maybe marginalizes or yeah. throws away when you start to edit you have your interviews done and, and you decide what shape the thing's going to take. Are you looking for, like, oh, that's when the bottom dropped out. So that'll probably be three-quarters of the way in. Like, how do you conceptualize the order of things? It's a movie. It's a story. It's dramatic structure. So right. I think, I, you know, I, don't, I look at these as entertainments, feature films with a, a story. You know, it's, they're not issue movies. They're, they're 
stories of a life, and they're, to use a cliche, they're hero's journeys, you know? So definitely when I look for stories, I look for stories that either through the way their lives naturally progressed or through editing, you can build these dramatic peaks and valleys. Right. And, you know, at the end of Act 2, is your hero going to be kicked to the curb like Alan Carr was after the Oscars? Right. Yeah, okay, there's, the, there's my end of Act yeah. 2 right there. Boom. So they're, they're, they're just storytelling rules that everybody uses. And then they kind of fit into these lives. And the, and the yeah, and lives, lives don't always work that way. Yeah. And lives don't generally work that way. So you definitely are honing your story to, to emphasize these dramatic peaks and valleys that are there. But um, maybe they weren't quite in that order. You right. Know? So, and are these stories all true? I don't know if they're true or not. I'm not a journalist. You know, I, I like the legends more than the facts. Yeah. Sometimes the legend is more interesting than the facts. So when you have a choice, you're going to print the legend. Right. Rather than the facts, because the facts aren't always as interesting. Right. Talk about picking the last shot of your documentary. I would think that, I mean, for any film, I think it's important, but... It just feels like, oh, what's our last... I know when I'm writing a, an interview or doing a profile, I'm like, I don't have that quote. That's that, a great question. That, that goes, boom. Ugh. What do I, how do I end? You know, sometimes you do. I'm like, oh, that's my ending. So I would think it's the same in a, in a film. Well, I don't want to give away the last shot of this movie, but like the last shot of I Am Divine right. is actually an animation, and it's after Divine has passed away, and we're talking about how Divine is now of the ages. And we found a greeting card that Divine did where she's dressed as an angel. And that was so obvious that that was going to be the last shot of the movie. So we animated the scene of Divine as an angel sort of flying off into the heavens, you know. And that, that, that Divine will be with us forever. Right. That, you know, his, um, his life on earth was short, but that people are going to be inspired by him forever. And yeah. uh, that was the last shot of I Am Divine. Um, the last shot of Alan Carr is actually kind of the same thing. <laughs> sort yeah. of, um, I look at this body of movies, and in a way, they're they're very. There are story beats in each one that are very similar. Mm-hmm. Like the Alan Carr movie is almost a remake of my first movie, Spine Tingler, which is also about a, a movie producer, right? And who who was sort of underappreciated and had you know some ups and downs and and. Um, and ultimately wanted the respect of his peers. Yeah, William Castle. Alan did, William Castle. And so it's very, uh, you look at these things and they're, they're, almost, uh, they're almost all the same movie, but they're not the same movie. Yeah, you know? there's themes that, that we cover. Yeah, for sure. Okay, you picked some questions from the observation deck. What's the, oh, I'm going to save that one. What's a voicemail that was left for you that you played more than once? That was from Valerie Perrine. Wow. Actually, and I just recently got it to play for her if you want later. I would love it. Um, but she, uh, she, you know, she's... Having health problems, she can't. She's not mobile. She can't get out on her own. She has caretakers. It's a progressive disease that um, is sad because she's so bubbly and full of life, and she right. just can't do that anymore. So I sent her a uh, computer link to the movie, and her caretaker, the one who connected me, uh, this this great guy, who's really her lifeline. He said, "Okay, uh, Valerie, just watch the movie, and she has something to say to you." And he put her on the phone, and she said, in her voice, which is like kind of quavery and you know and 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 you know not the valerie perrine that we remember right but she said uh you made alan carr a hero which was so touching to me because she she loved him and she also blamed him for 
ruining her, her career <laughs> because she did cancel out the music and she said that was like the end of really her movie star career. So getting that was really special because she got to see the movie, she understood it, mm-hmm. and she got to sort of see Alan Carr in a new light. There were some people that saw the movie recently, like one woman I know who is not in the film but knew Alan said, you know, I really enjoyed that movie and it was really about someone that I didn't particularly care for mm-hmm. <laughs> in real life. But I got a whole new point I of view on I understood him better. Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. So Valerie Perrine, that was a great voicemail. I would think. Have you ever written a fan letter? Um, I used to write a lot of fan letters. I, I have a whole album of... Um, of uh, photos, like signed photos of movie stars and TV stars that I would write to. At one point, I was writing for the entire cast of Dark Shadows, <laughs> that TV show. So of I course. have I have signed up. So it's not just one um, fan letter. It's many, 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 many fan many, letters. Many, many, many. I have Vincent Price, Benny Hill, Gil Gerard from Buck Rogers. Of course, he was um, hot. All these people, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I still have a lot of these. And I would write to authors. I would write to... Um, authors that I liked and it was always a bit, I wrote to Peter Benchley who wrote Jaws and yeah. he wrote me back and I would just say may I have a letter and an autograph and Peter Benchley who wrote Jaws wrote a letter back and said here is the letter and below is the autograph I <laughs> love it. Signed it was there one that where you're like oh this person really thought about this this yes. wasn't their publicity department there's a guy named Daniel Manis Pinkwater who was a children's, children's book author okay. he's written dozens of books and I loved his books growing up the most famous one is the Hoboken Chicken Emergency Yeah, and I wrote him a letter and he wrote me a long typewritten letter with, like, advice about being a writer. Because at the time, I was like, I think I want to tell stories. I guess I said I want to be a writer. And um, what should I do? And he's like, the first thing you need to do is learn to type. Which is such great advice. And right. I took that advice and I learned how to type. There and, you go. At, like, eight or nine years old. So that was really, he, like, he sat down and he thought about it. And I still have that letter. Daniel Manis Pinkwater. He was this... He think he's still around. He was a, a kid's book writer. He was, That's like, amazing. He was, 400 pounds, this guy. And he was very eccentric and... The Hoboken Chicken Emergency is yeah. a great book. Love it. What's the coolest thing you ever got for free? Well, um, you brought it out here I before we started, and you covered it up with a cloth so I couldn't so see I what it was. I want you to unveil it. This is something I just got married a few weeks okay. ago. You were there. I was there. And um, I got a wedding gift in the mail uh, from uh, someone that I'll tell you who okay. that's from. And that is a wonderful gift, and you can see it now. Okay, I'm lifting it. it up now. Oh my gosh, it's a cake with like, is, is it like a wax cake, like a prop cake or a... It's wax. It's a wax cake. It's a wax cake. It's and a wax cake. I opened it up and I thought it was real cake, but I thought... Yeah. This, I'm going to take a picture of it for the pod. Yeah, it might be real, it might be fake because it smelled really good. Yeah, it does smell good. And then I actually, then I saw the wicks and it's a, it's a frosted cake with like candy all over it and it's a wax cake. And was there any story to it or anything? Or well, I have to tell you, it's from John Waters. Oh my God, that's ama- That seems like something John Waters would send to somebody. John Waters loves fake food. Yeah, for some reason. And I've been to his place, and there's like fake, you know, plastic sushi and plastic meals all around. So I don't know where he got that, um, but I was so thrilled to get that. And John John Waters um, is to get. Anything from John Waters is pretty incredible. Yeah, that's but awesome. Since um, I got to know him, he was in um, the William Castle documentary. He's yeah. in I Am Divine, and and you know he's famous for his Christmas cards that he does every year. And yeah, I'm, I'm now on the list, which is like I can't believe it. it oh makes my god, so happy to like every year. I'm like, did I make the list? And yeah, then I got the card, and he sent me this beautiful. Um, Wedding present, which I I don't have the heart to ever light that light that cake. No, on fire. It's, you shouldn't. It's amazing. Yeah, it's that's great. so cool. Um, uh, does it feel different being married? 
Uh, people are starting to ask me that, and we, uh, Talos and I have been together for like six and a half years that at long? this point. Yeah, okay. so uh, it, it's, it, we, I felt like we were already, but it definitely is feeling different because there's a level of, um, oh, permanence, but also like security in a way. Like I know, it doesn't sound very romantic, but like I know if something happens to him or something happens to me, like we're going to be protected. You know, if we're traveling somewhere where... Gay people are, I mean, there's more hostility toward gay people. We're right. going to be okay. You know, I just feel like there's a, uh, we're, we're just like, uh, our relationship is, is, is respected in a way that it wasn't before. It sounds weird because I'm not looking for right. that kind of approval from society, but it does feel like, oh, we are, um, we're respected now yeah. by, by our country. You know, and that means, that means a lot. I had a moment at your bachelor party. I think I talked about on the podcast where there was a game being played. That was a typical bachelor party game about like, what do you know about your fiance or whatever? And, and I, I, I felt like, oh, we can be part of this. Like before we would maybe be the gay friend invited to the straight girls thing, but we're peripheral. And I had this epiphany at your party where I was like, oh, we can be. In the we're, heart of this. We're the, we're the narrative now. Yeah. yeah. Like that relationship. And, and I felt it. We we had people come to our wedding who'd never been to, like I had relatives who'd never been to a, a gay wedding before or a lesbian right. wedding before. And it's like, it it was really, that was really touching to get those responses from the straight people that what were there. What would they say to you? They're like, well, I've never been to one. It was really moving and meaningful. And like, I get it now. I, and even gay people who came and said, I never really thought this was important, but I can see why this is important. Right. There's, you you know? say in, in your vows or, or Bruce Valanche who, who officiated may have said that only, a few years ago, this wouldn't have been possible. Yeah. It just, I'm always thinking about history and how many, so many people struggled to make this happen yeah. and that we can't take this for granted, you know? And I feel like there's a, uh, I don't know, we're in a really perilous moment right mm-hmm. now and we can't take these rights for granted because the pendulum, Vito Russo always talked about the pendulum swinging back yeah. and forth. And now we're in a moment where like a lot of these things can be taken away. And, you know, I just, I think coming at it from like, we're strong, we're here, we're not going anywhere. Yeah. And our relationships should be valued. And not that you have to be married to be in a relationship or to, you know, it's not like a lot of people don't believe it's for them and i respect that yeah but you know i'm from i'm a kid from the suburbs and my parents are still together and i saw their relationship and i feel like modeled what i wanted out of a relationship from watching them and watching that dedication to each other they've been together like 51 52 years now that's amazing you know and i if we're lucky we'll be together many many years many many years and you know it's like we're a team and um I, I love that. But we haven't gotten the... Uh, Talos says uh, it won't feel real until we get the actual certificate back in the mail from the uh, from the, the courthouse. Oh, we haven't right. gotten that yet. So once that uh, certificate actually makes it here, that, that's when it'll feel real, I think. I got to meet your parents, and I told them the story about you that I think illustrates what a good man you are, which is you called me after Trump was elected... Just to see if I was okay, and I'm sure there was a long. Li- I'm sure you were like that long on the phone, <laughs> but what a, I just I'm moved it just thinking about that. That was so. a shitty time. It's still a shitty time. Every yeah. day is shitty. Yeah, under this piece of shit, you know. And uh, but it I was something that? that I didn't think I needed in that way. And yeah. then when I got it, I'm like, I did need it in that way. Well, I mean, I never thought it would affect us. I mean, I don't know. It, it, it's it's affected all of us on such a personal yeah. level. It's been such a kick in the gut. Yeah. Um, 
And it's still every day is a kick in the gut. Yeah. I'm afraid to open up the computer in the morning. Right. To see what horrors await us. Await. Um, we're still here. We're still here. On a happier note, um, tell people how they can learn more about um, your film and where they can see it. I know it's going to be playing at Outfest. It's going to be at Outfest. We have a website. In Los Angeles. AlanCarMovie.com. Facebook page, Twitter, all that stuff. Yeah. And we're going to be playing in the festivals throughout the course of this year. Oh, answer me this. I was just on Netflix, and, I, and then I'm like, oh, I love documentaries. I'm going to go through and mark all the ones I want. Do these new streaming platforms, have they helped documentarians? Because it feels like more people are thinking about, oh, I want to see a documentary, and there's this easy way I can look at what's new. And is it, has it changed the, the model for you guys? To some degree, yeah. I mean, documentaries, there's just more, there's more players now. There's more platforms where you can potentially uh, get a distribution deal. But uh, there's also more product out there. Right. So there's so many movies, not just documentaries, but there's just so much content. Now, right. now it's called content. You know? Yes. So, um, yes, uh, it's opened up new opportunities, but also yeah. how do you get noticed, you know? And, yeah. And, um, so it's sort of a mixed blessing. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with this film. We're, you know, we're, we haven't started the whole process of right, trying to sell the movie. And the, and the landscape changes every It always changes, year. and there's always new players. Yeah. But uh, it's not just HBO or you're screwed. You know, now yeah. there's Netflix, there's Hulu, there's Showtime. There's, you know, I've had movies play Netflix and, and also on Showtime, yeah. HBO. So if we're lucky, this will find a home, and wherever it, wherever it ends up living is yeah. where it's meant to be. I, um, I saw an interview recently with Sheila Nevins, the HBO documentary... Uh, queen. The queen, the queen, yeah. And she wasn't at all like what I imagined her to be. I just imagined somebody very bookish and, you know, um, quiet and just into docu- facts and whatever. And she's no. sort of vivacious and... She's kind of glamorous, actually. And she's yeah. glamorous, And yeah. she's been at HBO for, like, how many years? Yeah. 30 plus years. And Vito didn't... Didn't Vito... Vito played. And yeah. uh, thanks to her, Vito ended up being made, really. Yeah. Because... Um, I tried to. I got the movie up on its feet, like we were talking about before. Yeah. And I tried to get it to HBO, and was successful at getting it to her. And she immediately responded to it. And the reason was because she loved Vito, because she knew him, because they had done Common Threads that Rob Epstein and right. Friedman directed, and Vito was in that film, so she got to know him. And they did um, Cellular Closet, based on Vito's book. So right. she was immediately predisposed to. I mean, I think she probably liked the movie and thought it would make a good film. But she was also predisposed she to Vito. Personal connection. She had a personal connection. So I sent her a pitch reel, and I got a call uh, that they wanted me to come meet them. And I'm like, "Wow, does that mean that they want to make the movie?" And I wasn't sure if that meant yeah. that they wanted to make the movie. And I'm sitting in a meeting with her and Who John paid for Hoffman. The they did. Yes. Um, so and then yes, they paid for we, the line. We started talking at the <laughs> meeting, and I'm like, uh, "I didn't know if this what kind of meeting this was." And we, we watched the reel again. And they were talking to me and. At one point, she said, oh, we're going to make this movie. Don't worry about it. You can relax. Oh, Which isn't like, that like, for a documentarian, oh, it, isn't that, never that happens. the, that never that's happens. the Willy Wonka moment? Yeah, it never happens. And that's the only time that I've had, um, like, a network get involved um, early earlier in the process. Before it was done. So they came on board pretty early. Brian Singer yeah. had come on board as our executive producer and right. helped get us up on our feet. And that enabled us to shoot the interviews and present this reel to HBO. Right. And then when HBO came on board... We, they basically came in to, you know, with the funds to finish the whole yeah. movie. So everybody got paid. The movie's in the black. And that's amazing and a miracle. And you won an Emmy. Yeah, we got... Um, for which... For, we for n- Vito? For Vito. We were nominated for two Emmys and we won an Emmy, which was... For what? For what? We were nominated for um, historical documentary, yeah. which we didn't get. And we were also nominated for research, which we did get, which was so great because 
Vito spent like more than a decade researching the cellulite closets. I feel like that that award was yeah. really for Vito because he nobody had ever done a thorough put in examination of you know what gays he was starting from nothing. Yeah, gays on film, LGBT images on film from the silent era till the late seventies when he wrote that book. And there's no there was no. You know, you had to look, physically fly to Washington, D.C. to go to the Library of Congress to watch these movies on right. a flatbed and, you know, take photographs of individual frames, which is what he did. And nobody had done any no of it before. Done that. And he reached out he to every film. Zero. Yeah, he reached out to every film critic, every historian, everyone who loves movies. Like, can you tell me all the gay images that you remember seeing in movies? And he discovered things that no one even knew existed. Yeah. And he proved that we've always been there, even yeah. though... You know, um, and sometimes in really fucked up ways. Fucked up ways, but also great ways and secret ways and undercover ways, um, sneaky ways. Like people, directors like Hitchcock sneaking things in. Yeah, and, and people. Some people knew. Some people didn't. Um, some some people are seeing things that maybe aren't there. But if you see them, they're there. Yeah, you know. So he was finding images from silent films of sissy characters. He was finding shots of two men dancing together. He uh, did research into this German film, different from the others which was uh, the first uh, film featuring a lead gay uh, hero, gay right. character. And uh, he, he did all this, this work. And so that Emmy, was I really feel, was for him. That's what I said during the, at the, uh, at the Where ceremony. Where was the ceremony? It was in New York. It was the, it's the News and Documentary awesome. Emmy Awards. And it was incredible. You and won. We won. So uh, that Where's the Emmy now? The Emmy's in the other room. I'll wow, I love it. All yeah. right. Um, for the ending, what I would like to do is... I think that if you work on a documentary of these people, you get to know them really well and they start to become sort of a part of you. And I would imagine that there are certain qualities that you admire about them. And you're like, after this, I'm going to try to be more like William Castle in this way or, or whatever. You know, like, I'm gonna tr- this is the quality that, that I admire most about him and would, would try to be like, oh, what would Divine do? So um, I'm going to go through the movies and you just tell me what it is about them that you try to... Take. Okay. Does that make sense? As yeah, a man? sure. Sure. Okay, William Castle, director. Spine Tingler was your movie. Yeah, Spine Tingler was... Uh, William Castle was a great showman and a great promoter and certainly not shy about um, trumpeting whatever, whatever it was he was going to sell. Yeah. So I'm not really like... Well, at least at the time, I had to learn to be that way. I'm like a, a behind-the-scenes guy, kind of shy, and I don't really like the attention to be put on me, but I had to learn how to be comfortable right. with that. So you got to hustle. you got to hustle. And so with Spine Tingler, we were opening at the um, AFI Film Festival, and... I, I, that's where I saw it. At, that's where you saw it? In 2007. Yeah. And I needed to get attention for this documentary, How Do You Get Noticed? Yeah. When, you know, there's Lions for Lambs, a Tom Cruise movie was, you know, playing yeah. there too. So I, I had a replica made of the Tingler, this monster from one of his movies, and I uh, walked the red carpet uh, opening night of the festival with the Tingler on my back. And Tom Cruise is 20 feet away doing his press, and there I am with the Tingler on my back, and all the reporters who were on the press line wanted to talk to me. Right. Because they, they saw that monster, and they're like, what the hell is that? So that was a way of like, channeling William Castle and you know, being comfortable with uh, playing that role. That's something very, you know? that he would have done, and done you that. had to sort of step yes. into that. And I had right. a cigar, and I had the, which he used this famous That's awesome. cigars. And so that was, a, that was a, just being... And this is the answer to all of the movies. It's just trying to be, being fearless. Right. And um, that was uh, that was where that all started. All right. Jack Wrangler. Porn star. He was a gay, gay porn, porn star. Gay porn icon. Uh, he was married to was, a woman. He was married to a woman, but he was gay. Dunfight is gay. He was a scrawny little kid who uh, created the Jack Wrangler, a macho butch character wearing 
flannel and he went to the gym and pumped himself up and he became uh, not the first but one of the first big over the name above the title gay porn stars. Yeah, he's iconic. He's iconic. And so, I don't know, this might be a little too personal, but that was a, uh, I just, I made that movie and I was, I'd just broken up with a longtime boyfriend and I was, you know, I needed to reclaim my sexuality. Mm-hmm. So I was sort of channeling Jack Wrangler. I got a whole new wardrobe. I started going to the gym and I was in that moment where I was just going to embrace uh, being, uh, you know, get getting, I don't even know. I, I don't like talking about this stuff. This is I get it though. But you know, get, just getting more comfortable with my yeah, sexuality. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, working it a little and, bit. And my masculinity. Yeah. Say. So Jack came along. Presenting at the right, it a little bit. Came along at the right moment and I, I looked to him and I looked to that movie. Yeah, what a, pants would John, Jack Wrangler yeah, buy? what flannel would Jack Wrangler wear? Yes. Yeah. So that, right. that was, that was, a little that bit. was the, uh, the Jack Wrangler. That's movie. really cool. I love that. Um, Divine. Uh, that's a good one. The, uh, being fearless, just being like, um, not really trying not to give a crap about what anyone else thinks right and just um doing what it is that makes you happy and yeah. and going for it and then i sort of also identified with with divine's um um cr- craving i guess to be respected for his his artistry you know right and uh, not that i consider myself that but you know um uh, i make these movies and sometimes they're not sort of taken seriously because they're about Subjects that maybe aren't perceived as being right. serious, you know. Right. But with Divine, I felt like they're not hunger in you know not trying to, some country. They're and, not you know. political, although they are political, you know. Right. So, but with Divine, it was more about just not caring what the critics say and not caring what anyone else says. Just do what it is that makes you happy, right. and and um, and don't really care about. Don't what scream. Take me seriously. Take yeah, me seriously. Do your work and do what makes you happy. Yeah. Um, uh, Tab Hunter. Hmm, that's a good one. You know, Tab uh, is a really spiritual person, mm-hmm. and I'm not really that way, but uh, he taught me how to be grateful. And Yeah, he, he, you know, when he talks about his career and all this stuff, he just is always comes back to being, considering himself really fortunate. And I'm so fortunate. And in him, it's like, it's a God thing, you know, like God has given me all these, these blessings, you know, and I don't necessarily believe that, but I do feel like, I have to always stop and think like, wow, this is actually happening. And anything that is good that is happening in your life, you have to stop and like take it in. And uh, sometimes we're so uh, focused on the future or any anxiety about, well, what's going to happen and how am I going to live and all this stuff. And you, sometimes you forget to be in the moment. And yeah. Tab is always in the moment and, um, and grateful for anything good that happens to him. So yeah. he taught me that. Uh, that's awesome. Vito Russo. I know he's one of your heroes. And Vito's just... Do what make, again. Do what makes you happy. You know, it's not always about the money. It's not always about the, you know, uh, public recognition. Sometimes because he worked at the baths, the gay baths, while he was writing the cellular closet. He was working as a waiter. He was broke. He was just focused on getting that book done, and he knew it would take a long time. It took him ten years to do it. Once he did it, everything changed for him. You know, so that was a thing of just um, being true to yourself and uh, and sometimes making choices that um, are going to make you happy in the long run. But, you know, it's going to be a slog, you know, like making these movies. It's hard work. It's a slog. And, you know, you have good days and bad days. And I always think of Vito. I always think, you know, what would Vito do in any circumstance? You know, and the choices that you make that um, in your life that we're all faced with. Yeah. Uh, what's going to make you happy and what's going to keep you secure. Sometimes yeah. those aren't the same things. Love that. And finally, Alan Carr. Did I miss anybody of the big ones? Alan Carr, 
Uh, I got them all, right? You got them all. Okay. Did you get them all? Yeah, you got them all. That's great. Uh, that's a good one because it's a new one. But, um, you know, he was a sensualist, you know, so he just enjoyed his life. He, yeah, he ate too much. Um, he did too many drugs. There were a lot of Twinkies. Uh, there were a lot of Twinkies. But he uh, wanted to live in the moment and wanted, didn't want life to pass him by. So that's another lesson, I think, um, even though there was a sort of a, uh, there were side effects to that with Alan Carr, he knew that this moment was not going to last forever, so he right. embraced it. And so I always try to remember that, you know, not to just be a total workaholic, even though he was too, right. but just try to um, stay connected to uh, your friends. Also. Enjoying a meal. Enjoy a meal. Uh, enjoy your friends. Be with your friends. Uh, be there for people when, when, when uh, they need you, because Alan Carr was always there for his friends. He took care of people. Uh, when they were sick, you know, um, he, he put people through college when he was able to, he was able to use the blessings that he was given to help other people, but he did it in a quiet behind the scenes. Right. You didn't know that much about that. Yeah. That was really beautiful. That's awesome. All right. I love talking to you. I love your movies. Uh, I think you're awesome. You're awesome too. And, um, if you're in LA, go see the fabulous Alan Carr at Outfest. If not, find it online and keep up with it and you'll eventually be, be, uh, able to see it. Awesome. All right. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Many thanks again to Jeffrey Schwartz. Go see the fabulous Alan Carr if you live in L.A. It's at Outfest on Wednesday, July 12th. Um, and if you're not in L.A., just watch for it. Um, and check out Jeffrey's other documentaries. A lot of them are available online, all over the place, wherever you get your fine documentaries. Okay. So this happened. I want to get a plug-in for something I watched that I loved. The um, A lot of people are probably already talking about this. But the Thanksgiving episode of Master of None in season two, uh, it deals with his lesbian friend Denise, and it's so great. It should win a GLAAD award, just for the hair and makeup alone. Um, I don't want to give away too much, but uh, it's wonderful. And if you, even if you haven't watched the whole show, you can just watch that episode. It's a standalone thing, and um, it really moved me. I loved it. All right, and the other thing I want to just... I want to go on record, and maybe this will be, you know, like on Miss America where you have a platform, like your platform would be illiteracy or abstinence or whatever. Here's my platform. People in movies and TVs, you've got to put coffee or water or some kind of liquid in those coffee cups when you're using them as props. Latest example, Baby Driver, really fun movie, a lot of detail went into everything. At one point, early on, our title character, Baby Driver, is bringing coffee to people in one of those Starbucks-y trays, right? There's no fucking liquid in those cups. You could tell by the way he moves, by the way they move. I don't know, they want to get everything realistic and, like, nail everything down, but I can't stand when they don't have coffee in the cups, or whatever it is. And then, last night I watched an episode of Glow where two pizzas were delivered. I don't think there was anything in those boxes. They moved them around like there was nothing in those boxes. So it doesn't have to be hot coffee. It doesn't have to be real pizza. But there's something about containers that move differently when there's stuff in them. And the people that handle them move differently when there's stuff in them. And I don't know if I have to stage a protest. I don't know if I have to do kind of, kind of a sit-in where everyone shows up with a, with a coffee that's full of something. I don't know what it's going to take, but I'm willing to be the face of this because I've, I've had it. Um, anyway, that's all I have for this week. Jo if you believe that, if you, if you believe me, make me a note on uh, the Dennis Anyone Facebook page and stand with me because together 
I think we can really make a difference on this front. No other fronts in the culture or the politics, but we can, we can do something about this. I feel like it's a manageable, it's, a, it's something that can change. All right, thanks for listening. Go see Jeffrey's movie if you're in L.A., and we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye. Oh, and I'm going to remind you again, the John Waters cake is what I took a picture of at uh, Jeffrey's place, and I'm going to put it on DennisAnyone.net. Okay, bye. <laughs>